Well, a few months ago, both Stephanie and I saw the neighborhood cat roaming in the backyard, um, much to my delight and her eye roll. The cat was back there, and um, I thought this might be a good time to help Stephanie in her complicated relationship with felines that she's had since I've known her almost 30 years. Um, and so I just said to her, you know, I, I think this would be, you know, good for you maybe to kind of like uh, expose you to the, to the warmth and the love of a little cat. Like I had cats all growing up, um, took a cat with me to college, and the cat could sleep in my bed, and, and I just love the cat so much. And it's shocking that Stephanie married me having found that out. At any rate, so um, I said, I'm going to go in the backyard, and this cat, there's nothing to worry about with this cat. This cat is a sweet cat, a happy cat. Um, watch how this happens. So I go to the backyard, and uh, I, go, I go outside her view. Like, like she, she had seen the cat walking around, but we were now in an area that had obstructed her view. And so I walk up to the cat, and initially the cat is just sweet and gracious, and the cat is rubbing up against my legs and, you know, just seems to be such a sweet cat. And, and so I felt like that that was like a, a, a kind gesture from the cat. And so I reached down, and I pet the cat, and the cat received warmly, seemingly happily, my pats, okay? All was going well, and then inexplicably, the cat kind of jumps back, looks at me and goes, <laughs> like, like, like it was like the cat had become possessed. Like I didn't, like it was like shocking, like the change. It was like, there was some kind of like, you know, neurological disorder with this cat or something. And I was like, I, in my entire life, I have never had this experience, okay? So I kind of like, you know, gathered myself, paused, took a step toward the cat, <laughs> you know, again, and I'm like, whoa, this is not going well. So I sought to de-escalate the situation, okay? So I leave to walk near the house, and the cat starts to follow me. Absolutely true story. Starts to stalk me, if you will. And I turned around, and I looked at the cat, and I was like, get away, get away. The cat springs at me and scratches my leg and draws blood. There is a droplet of blood going down my leg. And so, buddy, I, I went after that cat and the cat ran, okay? It was fight or flight, him or me. Um, so now I had a dilemma. Big dilemma. Because I had told her, you know, let's see how this goes, you know? So I came in, I walked in the door, she was in the kitchen, you know, doing something. I quietly walk in the door, go straight to the bathroom, put my leg in the bathtub, and like just, you know, emphatically scrub my leg. You know, I didn't want any infection. I could hear her when I was going down the hall. How did that go? <laughs> I think that's a great example that sometimes helping can hurt, like literally. Helping can hurt. Helping can hinder. And that's a very humorous illustration of a dynamic we have in our passage today where um, with all the good intentions of, in the world, 
um, the family of Jesus seeking to help him, seeking to protect him, actually unintentionally and unwittingly were hindering his ministry. So with that in mind, beloved, please stand for the reading of God's word. We continue in our series through the life and public ministry of the Lord Jesus. This week we find ourselves in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Just very quickly, you've heard us before talk about this literary or, or narratival technique called a Markin sandwich, right? You've heard of that before, where you have story A, and then story A gets interrupted with story B, and then the author comes back to story A. So you have a story, and then the same story on the bottom, the bottom bun, the meat in the middle, you know, is a story that's been inserted, and reading it all together, it makes a cohesive whole and is fascinating. So see if you can uh, identify the Mark and Sandwich in our text. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Verse 20, then Jesus went home and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. By home, Jesus was in Capernaum and he was at the house of Peter and Andrew. That's where he was basing his operations. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, okay, um, his mother and brothers, like presumably maybe they were in Nazareth or maybe they were close by, you know, the ministry of their son. When his family heard that the crowd had gathered so that the disciples and Jesus could not even eat, his family heard this, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, quote, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. That's another word for Satan in their context. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, Jesus did. He asked, how can Satan cast out Satan? That makes no sense. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit or he is possessed. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my brother? I'm sorry, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. So, we're investigating this Mark and Sandwich. We're trying to make sense of it. In the first three verses, Mark 3, verses 20 through 22, I'm going to call this like accusation at the crossroads. Accusation at the crossroads. And so prior to this, the ministry of Jesus had, had enjoyed remarkable, remarkable momentum. He had been healing people. He had been driving out demons. He had been utterly captivating audiences, as we've already indicated. What did Jesus do or say that was so captivating? I mean, obviously when he would heal um, the sick or cast out demons, but he taught with great authority in a way that would be hard for us to even understand. There was something about the gravity, the gravitas, the power of his preaching that was undeniable. And so crowds had been flocking to him. The text indicates his family had heard that the crowds were so densely packed around him, so desperate were they for his help, that the disciples, they couldn't even eat. They were so packed with people, there was no time to eat, okay? And so over time, these whispers, this awe and wonder among the crowd, we hear an accusation. An accusation comes forth, okay? In verse 21, what is the accusation? He's being accused that he's what? Or he's being described as being out of his mind, they said. Here's the million-dollar question for us to consider. From where are these accusations coming? And what is the motivation for these accusations? Okay? Um, if your attention has not been piqued yet, this passage is a passage that one of the most foremost critical scholars, we've talked about him before, Bart Ehrman, who teaches at Chapel Hill, Bart uses Mark chapter 3, verse 21, to try to um, explain or prove that the gospel writer Mark, he did not believe in the virgin birth. His assertion is that the verse we are now reading, 321, proves definitively that there was no such thing as a virgin birth, that was an evolution over time, and Mark didn't believe it. So how does he do that? The million-dollar question is who the they is referring to. Let's look at the text briefly. In verse 21, it reads... When his family heard it, what is the it there? The it is most likely referring to the fact that the crowd was so dense and Jesus was so busy that he couldn't even eat. He wasn't even able to care for his needs in that sense. Verse 21, when his family heard it, heard about how busy and, and, and perhaps hungry he was or whatnot, they, his family, went out to see him for they were saying, that Greek term, they were saying, that verb, he is out of his mind. 
To whom is that they referring? Who's the one saying he's out of his mind? So, Ehrman articulates that um, the most likely answer, according to the Greek, is its most immediate antecedent. Who is the they? The they is the family of Jesus. They've come, they've heard what he's doing, they want to stop him and bring him home, because why? He's out of his mind. Bart Ehrman uses that to indicate, you know, if, you know, Luke is true, the gospel of Luke is true, if Luke is right about the, you know, infancy narratives of Jesus, then Mary, what would she know about Jesus? If Luke is accurate and true and is real history, what happened to Mary? Who came to her? An angel, Gabriel, told her what was going on inside of her. Who was Mary's cousin? Elizabeth. They were visited by an angel. An angel of the living God came to Mary telling her about who it was that would be conceived in her womb, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, would be the Messiah, essentially. And so Bart Ehrman says, well, obviously, that's not true, because she thought he was out of his mind. There's no way that she could have thought that he was born of a virgin, that, you know, or any of that, or she, there's no way she could have known what Gabriel told her, and known that he was God, and known that he was born of a virgin, and then say he's out of his mind. That doesn't make any sense. So Bart concludes, like, are you following me? Okay, you might need to take a, a sip of coffee, okay? If the they refers to his family, it's Ehrman's assertion that they would not have believed that Jesus was born of a virgin or had been prophesied as God. And actually, many scholars think believing, Jesus loving kingdom living scholars who do think that it was his family who said this. But they have a different interpretation than Ehrman. They think, yes, his family said that. What do you think might be that explanation? If you love the Bible, you believe in the authority and inerrancy of God's word, you believe that's true, and you believe that it's family, his family who said it. How do you put that together? Well, many scholars who have that view think, well, have you ever heard of what we call the messianic secret, secret, like people around Jesus, like their understanding of the gospel, God intentionally veiled, you know, even though Jesus would say things and predict things, his disciples as his ministry went along seemed like they had never heard it, you know, and so this might be an example of that, that even though Mary had seen the angel Gabriel, had heard these things, by this time in Jesus' ministry, her understanding was a little foggy. I don't think that's the case. I think a much better explanation in the context is the they refers to people in the crowd and perhaps even the scribes who are mentioned in the same verse, or in the next verse rather. So the they is, the family hears. The family hears that Jesus, you know, he can't even eat. He is so mobbed by this crowd. They're concerned for his welfare. On the way they hear that people are saying he's out of his mind. He's possessed by a demon. And so his family wants to come and protect him and help him and bring him back home and deliver him from this situation. I think that totally fits the, con, 
text better. In my view, that's the they. Look at verse 21. When his family heard it, in other words, that he couldn't even eat, he was so busy, they went out to seize him for they, meaning those in the crowd or the scribes, they were saying he's out of his mind. He's crazy or he's possessed. Okay. That's the top part of the sandwich, okay? Now we're going to go to the meat. Like I had a delicious French dip the other night that was just like, the meat is kind of where the meaning can be found. I mean, it was so delicious, and it had that au jus you dip in. It was just, mmm. That has nothing to do with this right now. So now we get this interruption. Remember story A, then story A gets interrupted with story B. This is story B. All right, verses 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul or, or, or Satan. And these scribes, these are not your garden variety scribes. You know, Chris Coleman is one of the most impressive interns. Olivia Costanza, one of the most impressive interns we've ever had. No diminishment to them. The scribes in this passage were not interns, Okay. The scribes in this passage were the elite scholars of their day. They came from Jerusalem. Jesus' reputation had gone far and wide, and they were sending the best of the best. The best of the best scholars had been dispatched to deal with Jesus. Okay? And what's interesting is what they did not challenge. And this is just interesting, even as you look at the Bible and read, you know, um, Luke's description of the early church, what did they not dispute? They didn't dispute that he was doing miracles, didn't dispute that, didn't say, hey, it's smoke and mirrors, they didn't, they didn't refute that. They didn't say he wasn't casting out demons, right? They kind of like operate on the basis that, of course, all those things are true, yet, they frame it with a different interpretation and say, yes, he's doing these things, but he's doing these things through Satan's power. That's how he's doing these things. That's how they were seeking to hinder his ministry and undermine his ministry. Look with me at verses 28 through 30. Jesus responds to this. And to say that Jesus escalates the seriousness of this would be an understatement. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now that's interesting. He says, whatever blasphemies, what, what, you know, in whatever ways they speak against God, that's going to be forgiven. But, in verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So the second million dollar question is, what in the world is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is the one sin that cannot and will not be forgiven? And you realize what this text of Scripture has or the impact that it's had 
on the life of countless believers. It's, it's had an effect in my life. What, what is the obvious question that people ask when they read this? Believers, have I done that? Am I deceiving myself? In my pre-Christian days, did I say anything or do anything if I took the Lord's name in vain, if I was maybe part of a cult, like you know, some kind of occult group or something like that? Have I, have I gone too far? Have I crossed the line and that sin will never ever be forgiven? You know, have I said something rash as a believer? And is that true of me? Like I think back to, um, I came to Christ in college and I played tennis in college and um, I, I, I did not always engage in, in the most self-control that you've ever seen. Like Bjorn Borg was described as like the Iceman, if you will, and John McEnroe was like Mr. Fiery you know, on the court, not, not like McEnroe per se, but things that went through my head and even things that were said, I would read a passage like this and say, that could have easily been me. Or maybe you've thought that. So, are you still with me? Are we still listening? Are we having fun? Okay. Basically, two options for this view within our context. The first view, and see if you can follow the logic, the first view, how we understand this, would be that this is not talking about it today, a specific act per se, but the persistent, habitual rejection of Jesus over a lifetime, okay? As this would go, the thought process is, what is the job of the Holy Spirit? The job of the Holy Spirit is to testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so over the course of a lifetime, to die in a state of hardened rebellion, essentially calling the Holy Spirit a liar to the point of death, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the obvious response is, you know, the comfort that is often given, you know, um, thoughtly, thoughtfully and reasonably is, you know, if you're concerned about it, what does that mean? If you're concerned about it, if you're worried about it, if you're like wringing your hands together thinking, what if that could have been me? What is that actually ironically evidence of? That you haven't committed it. Because your heart is soft. You are desirous for the Holy Spirit to be at work in your life. So, if you're worried about it on that view, you have not committed it. And we know theologically um, that all that the Father gives to the Lord Jesus will come to him and that he will complete every work that he has started. The second one, you know, um, we have a professor in the room and he may or may not agree with me on this. I take a minority view where this event, I'm gonna use a fancy word, is kind of like what we would call this, I dare you to use this over lunch, like redemptive historical. It is this event in redemptive history that is unique and singular. Like for example, in the book of Acts, there are two people who lie to the Holy Spirit and are struck dead in the early church. Trivia question, who were they? Ananias and Sapphira. And we would, you know, and so students in seminary might say, well, why didn't that keep happening? Like what, well, we would call it kind of a unique redemptive historical warning sign. 
to the early church to not um, lie to the Holy Spirit, to follow the Lord. It was a warning sign, if you will. Like in the Old Testament, a big redemptive historical moment might be the parting of the Red Sea or the manna that was there for a limited time. That the reason that Jesus says this to the scribes is that you had a singular, unrepeatable situation going on in redemptive history. You had the incarnate Son of God, who was Yahweh God Almighty, very God, a very God, testifying to the truth of his person and work. He was doing miracles in fulfillment of the Old Testament to vindicate and authenticate who he was. He came to deliver people from prison. And here were the religious leaders attributing the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus to Satan. And on the scale of heinousness, that is as bad as it can get. So on the second view, that was a sin that would have been limited to Jesus' public ministry and the gravity of that kind of accusation given that we're talking about God Almighty in Christ, the unity of God in the Trinity, the power of the Holy Spirit. When you do that, it's over. What do the two views have in common, whether you take the first or the second? If you're worried about it, if you're concerned, if you have a soft heart, if you wrestle with it, you have not committed it. Does that make sense? That should be affirming and encouraging. But not to diminish, rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. Rejecting his, his, his testimony to Jesus today through his word and by his spirit is so very serious. So very serious. And they were seeking to hinder his ministry. Okay, we're almost done. About to land the plane. Go to the bottom of the bun. Mark 31, Mark 3, 31 through 35. Tell me what these, you know, the buns and the meat have in common. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him, sent to Jesus and called him. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus and they said to Jesus, your mother and your brothers, they're outside and they're seeking you. He answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. What did both groups have in common? Both groups were hindering the ministry of Jesus. One intentionally, one unintentionally. One wittingly, one unwittingly. Mary knew full well who Jesus was, absolutely, without a doubt. She was going there like, I, which of you mothers would not do this? There is something so powerful about the bond between a mother and her son or her child that when she saw that her son was totally overwhelmed, could not eat, people were saying terrible things about him, what was her maternal instinct? to protect him, to help him. Would it have been a good thing if she had been able to pull him away? No. Jesus was called to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus was born into this world into an estate of humiliation and difficulty. And what he was doing and what he was facing and feeling and experiencing, that's what he came to do. Their intentions were good, but it was a hindrance. And of course, the scribes, that goes without saying, they were intentionally inhibiting and hindering the ministry of Jesus. And so I think what Jesus is saying at the end of this is that my true spiritual family is defined by those who love me and serve me and follow me and worship me on my own terms. Those are the people that are comprised of my spiritual family. My spiritual family doesn't seek to hinder me, they seek to follow me in humility wherever that leads. And if you're like me, unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, you know, we try to hinder Jesus' ministry in our life. What is fancy term, like the word sanctification, growth as a Christian, how does that happen? That's hard. That takes humility. That takes self-awareness and introspection. That, that takes, you know, letting the Holy Spirit be at work in our hearts, convicting us, pointing out to us our prideful, judgmental spirit. Um, the work of sanctification we talk about is the refining fire or the compression of God's spirit in a good way. It, 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 it compresses and the dross is squeezed out. That's challenging. Like C.S. Lewis said, you know, it's at the end of our lives oftentimes because of the progressive work of sanctification that you can start to see real fruit of the Spirit happening. And we seek to hinder the work of the Holy Spirit when we, when we rebel against that, when we rebel against the sovereignty of God. We see even churches doing that today. And our church is not immune to this. As, as culture, even cultural Christianity has talked about, you know, um, various uh, same-sex attractions that are, that are compatible with the word of God. I read an article the other day that said that uh, we're Christians, we're, we're saying because the Bible was written in a particular culture and a context that Jesus was just wrong because of his cultural context. And so it was relative to his day. You know, I, I think their heart's in the right place to some degree, but that is massively hindering the work of Jesus in the life of the church. We are called those who are his mother and his brothers and his sisters, his family. We love the Lord Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in scripture. We bow before his throne and who he is and what he's done. And when we don't understand, we trust him. We're a people that pray. Sometimes the ministry of Jesus is hindered through what we don't do. God has an end to all things, but he has a means to that end, and he uses your prayers, and he uses my prayers to bring people to himself. He would call us to be a people of persistent, deliberate, articulate, specific prayer. When you're going to lunch with a friend who may not know the Lord, do you pray before the lunch? Holy Spirit of the living God, give them eyes that they might see 
my father, my mother, my brother, or my sister. You know, oftentimes, unintentionally, we can hinder the work of Jesus. May we be his family. May we apply the words of Jesus and be his adopted sons and daughters who love him and serve him and worship him for who he is and what he's done. Beloved, let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you and we praise you for this literary masterpiece on Mark's part. How he so wisely and carefully bracketed this event, how he, how he, how he linked these two um, groups of people, one who was, was um, unintentionally hindering him, his very own family, and the other who was intentionally hindering him, how you bring that all together to teach us what true support of Jesus' ministry by the Holy Spirit looks like. Help us more and more learn what it means to be his humble, submissive, obedient sons and daughters, his very family. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen and amen.